This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. It's the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm Jamie Bogner, and we are in Cheyenne, Wyoming, for an interesting conversation that we have been trying to pull together for a better part of this year. Uh, Eric Toft from Brewery, uh, Private Landbury Shunram is with me. Correct. I, I, did I say that close enough? That's close enough. Okay, okay. One of the more influential lager brewers in the world. Uh, many brewers that I have talked to have uh, implemented some of your techniques and approaches to lager brewing in their own brew houses. We can talk about some of those things. Um, but this, we were supposed to have this conversation in Belgium back in February. And in fact, we had originally scheduled a Joe Stang, our managing editor, who had wrote a fantastic feature around you back in our 2020 lager issue. Correct, um, yeah. A beautiful story that goes into lots of depth around your approach to brewing. Um, Joe had set it up for us to record this podcast episode uh, at Cantillon after our podcast with Jean Vanois. And then you know you had personal circumstances that uh, made that not possible. And then last weekend, we were out at the uh, Firestone Walker Invitational Beer Festival. And uh, I didn't realize I didn't realize you were going to be there in person. I had actually reached out to Mark, uh, your importer, who's in Southern California, thinking he was probably going to be repping the brewery. Certainly, you know, turns out I show up on Friday afternoon, and there you are in the Firestone Tap Room having lunch with Matt. And uh, <laughs> and then uh, after a few beers on Saturday night, I cajoled you into to, uh, meeting me up here. And we're at uh, Blacktooth Brewing in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Thank you to Thomas and Blacktooth here for allowing us to set up and, and have the, the podcast. We actually wrote a breakout brewer story about Blacktooth back in 2015. Go look it up on the uh, craft beer and brewing, the beerandbring.com website. It's all right there. Nonetheless, I'm excited that we are finally able to have this conversation about lager brewing. Um, for those of us who were at the Firestone Walker Invitational, if you were at the brewer's camp after the festival ended, uh, you could see the Shunram bottles scattered around because all of the brewers were clamoring for whatever is left. And as I was talking to Vinicius Lerzo from Russian River earlier this week, he mentioned to me that he actually uh, took a case of leftover beer for himself, and that was all he was drinking for the past week. I know you you headed up there after the <laughs> festival, but yeah. he was he told me yesterday that uh, yeah that's that's all he's been drinking for this past week. That's, that's um, a compliment. Nice to hear. You you certainly make beer for brewers, beer the brewers respect, lager beer uh, that is uh, the some of the best in the world. Obviously, uh, Schoenraum was one of Craft Beer and Brewing's beers of the year last year. It was about time. Um, We're going to dive into the Schoenraum approach to lager brewing. You, of course, are an American brewing in Germany, uh, but have been there for multiple decades now. And uh, uh, anyway, we're can't wait to dive into some of the technical strictures, some of the creative approach. Well, I say creative, I would say ingredient and hyper-focus. Um, some of the technical approaches to, to things like open-top fermenting lager beer, uh, you know, and working within that kind of tradition to build character that is uniquely and distinctly uh, shown wrong. But first, for nearly 30 years, G&D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment. You can rely on G&D stands above the rest as the only chiller manufacturer that engineers your glycol piping for free. GD also stands alone as the only chiller manufacturer with an in-house team of installers and engineers with 30 years of real-world field labor experience. 
in breweries, wineries, and distilleries. Contact the Total Glycol System Design experts today at gdchillers.com. Also, support for this episode comes from BSG and the Malt House by RAR. The Malt House is your online source for cool and exclusive RAR malting company gear that you can't get anywhere else. T-shirts, hoodies, hats, socks, glassware, and even gear for your pets. Rep the malt you brew with and look sharp doing it. Take the tradition home at themalthouse.com. That's themalthaus.com. So Eric, we normally start off the podcast with some background. Yours uh, takes you across the ocean. Um, you were, were you born here in Wyoming? Talk to me about this kind of history and your arc through brewing and uh, life and how you ended up as a head brewer for, or a brewmaster for Schonram in Bavaria. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I was uh, nearly born here. Uh, my dad was drafted into Vietnam. and Your dad, he, who's sitting right here with us. He's sitting here with us. He was uh, sent uh, to an Air Force base in Ohio as a physician. So my mother was pregnant with me and then uh, that's, uh, so that's where I was born, but um, grown up and spent my, my younger years here in Cheyenne. I went to the university uh, to did my studies in geophysics and geology at the Colorado School of Mines in Golden. And um, when I was finishing my studies, um, the, there weren't many jobs available. Uh, I was uh, enamored of the idea of working for the USGS and uh, living in a tent and uh, being in the mountains all the time, but uh, they weren't hiring. The only jobs available were with um, uh, major oil companies in Saudi Arabia. And it just didn't didn't appeal to me that much. Uh, I'd been homebrewing all through uh, my my four years in Golden and was a very early member of the AHA and uh, went to Boulder Homebrew Club meetings I uh, still have contact with, uh, with a guy from there, uh, <laughs> a certain Bill guy. From, from Boulder. Yeah. And, um, I went out, well, I came, I just decided why not start a brewery and homebrewers were starting breweries back then. And, um, there weren't that many, there was, uh, the Boulder Brewing Company and the wing coop opened up. There was Kessler in Montana. There was a uh, Red Hook in Seattle and, um, Thomas Kemper, um, Bainbridge Island, and then there were a couple in Portland, and then of course the iconic Sierra Nevada. Sure. Uh, on the way there, Pyramid Ales and Triple Rock Brew Pub and Buffalo Bills Brew Pub, and that was about it. So mm-hmm. I decided to do, do a little tour and visit what was existing in the West at that time, and um, made the decision to, if I'm going to do this, I want to do it properly and get a, a, a well-founded education in brewing before I take the plunge. So I didn't have any debt um, from from my four years at, in Golden, and I didn't have any obligations. Those were years where you could finish college without uh, huge amounts of debt. Exactly, yeah. So I, I was free, and uh, I'd always wanted to spend some time in Europe. So I, I just went over there blindly, thinking if there was a chance or the possibility of getting a, an education in brewing, it would be in Germany. So I signed up for a two-month intensive language course and uh, wrote letters to the professors at the brewing school in Weinstefan, Professor Nazis. Uh, I got a letter back after a couple of weeks, and he said that I had to work at least one year in a brewery with my previous education. Otherwise, I would have had to do a three-year apprenticeship, but at least one of one year of practical work before being admitted to Weinstefan. So... He sent me to some breweries in the Black Forest where I was doing my language course. And 
I knocked on doors until I found one that opened and <laughs> they couldn't offer me a job at the, the brewmaster was sympathetic with my cause and he helped me find a place. So I landed in Uim, where I actually worked for a year and a half before going on then to Weinstefan. And part of Weinstefan back then was also that you had to lead, speak the language. So I had my two month course and then my internship time in the breweries that uh, gave me the language background I needed to to study. This was before the days when Siebel and uh, Domans offered some sort of international program Correct, with, uh, yeah. with that. So you had to build the program yourself. Right. So you studied at uh, Weinstefan. Uh, you know, how, where did you move after that? Having spent then a good, well, nearly four years in Germany, I thought it was time to see something different. And I'd always been very impressed by the Belgian beers, particularly the Trappists. And sure. uh, I worked um, as a student for, for one of the um, faculties, and they had a, a conference once, and there were some Belgian brewers there. And I just hit them up and asked them if, if they knew anything, how I could maybe work in Belgium. So I ended up during uh, one of my uh, spring breaks, which was a two-month, two-and-a-half-month spring break, was able to go to Belgium and work f for that time see how the Belgians do it. And just as I finished Wine Stefan a year later, I got a call from that brewery where I'd been asking if I would be interested in the assistant brewmaster position. So <laughs> I said yes, and I went to Mechelen. That's a little town, well, good-sized town, 80,000 people between um, Antwerp and Brussels. Mm -hmm. And this was about the time where Interbrew uh, was founded now, later than InBev right. and now AB InBev. So the brewery that uh, I was called Lamotte, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, that was part of the, the early in interbrew days. It had uh, originally been a private brewery. It had been purchased by Bass, uh, England, and was sold to the brewery Piet Boeuf, which makes the, the Pils brand Jupelet, which is now the, the major Pils brand in, sure. in Belgium. So. Uh, that's why we became part of this um, uh, this this joint venture between these t the two biggest Belgian breweries, um, um, Piet Boeuf and Stella Artois. So that was uh, it was a great time for me because uh, we were making Bass Pale Ale then uh, under license, Bass Stout, and this was also a time when the when the Interbrew was buying up breweries all over Belgium, so f small to mid-sized family breweries, so anywhere between thirty and. 300,000 hectoliters, closing them down to get rid of the Pilsner brands and um, wow, wow. But keeping the specialty beers and all the <clears throat> buying specialty and drying. Beers, yeah, and all the specialty beers were going to Lamotte. So huh. I got in that time to brew um, Hugarden Grand Cru and Verboten Frucht and uh, Julius. Um, then uh, uh, three different Belgian style pale ales, um, Hindral, uh, Horsale and uh, Vuitton, and then, um, we, well, we took over Whitbread and Campbell, which was brewed at one of the breweries we closed, so Campbell Scotch, McEwen Scotch, McEwen Stout, so McEwen's Christmas, so it was a huge, it's a good 500,000 hectoliter brewery, which had previously been a primarily a Pilsner brewery. What years were that? Were that? Uh, that was 91 to 93. Okay. I loved that era of uh, McEwen's Scotch Ale. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So it was fantastic education, mm -hmm. uh, getting these brands given to me and adapting them for the existing brewery 
trying to meet the specs and the approval of uh, you know the headquarters in Leuven. Sure, sure. And um, so it was a huge, huge learning curve. I learned about a lot about hops and yeast. Uh, we used twenty-three different hop varieties, eight different yeast varieties, or yeast strains, uh, making all these beers. And well, at that time, uh, it was it was clear that they were going, going to close La Motte because they were building two brand new breweries. Uh, one in Leuven and one in Juppie to to house uh, the two major right. brands, and they would have then additional cap- capacity to take up the brands that we were brewing. So I decided to start looking for for work in Bavaria to gain a little more experience. Sure, and uh, ended up at a brewery about thirty five kilometers up the road from Schönram as assistant head brewer, and this was a completely different world. It was uh, yeah. Going from five hundred thousand hectares, but all open fermentation, horizontal tanks in in Mechelen to um, to seventy thousand hectoliters of classical Bavarian style beers, and I was there for five and a half years, and have uh, moved from there to Schönraum, where the uh, in ninety eight the the head brewers well there was only one brewmaster at the time. I opened up, I applied and got the job and there I am. So I'm I'm finishing my 24th year, 25th year starts in October. That is incredible. And what <laughs> a, you know, interesting and diverse background to end up back in Germany um bring a much more limited palette of beers but being able to focus so intently on improving that uh you know and not just improving but also maintaining the quality of uh, of this more limited palette of beers. I now that we're there at Schönram, I want to talk about uh, you know the the design of those beers because of course, uh, twenty four years you've clearly put your thumbprint on on the beers at the brewery and have taken some very specific uh, approaches to the way that you now brew those beers. Before we do that, looking for innovation, in your next beverage breakthrough. Think outside the puree box and let your brand stand out with Old Orchard's Craft Concentrate Blends. Even smoothie seltzers can benefit from the extra boost of flavor and color. Old Orchard is based in the Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan area, also known as Beer City, USA, and supplies craft beverage categories ranging from beer, wine, and cider to seltzers, spirits, and kombucha. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash Brewer. Also, as craft beer's most trusted point of sale system arrived as the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction. With a full suite of craft-specific features, no contracts and no monthly fees, Arrived provides the necessary tools to help your brewery grow. Go to arrived.com forward slash CBB to set up a free customized demo. That's arrived, A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com forward slash CBB. Remember, there is no I in arrived. And arrived had some good news this week. They have purchased or they have acquired Craft Peak and are working on integrating e-commerce and their POS sales. Excited to see what they come up with next. So let's talk, Eric, about uh, lager beer design. Um, I imagine, you know, so you, you come to Schoenraum 24 years ago, almost 25 now. Um, what did the lagers, what, you know, are there, how have those beers changed over time? What uh, did some of the core, say, Hellas and uh, Pilsner and Dunkel look like then? And uh, what, you know, what have you watched dynamically happened in the time since then yeah well the, um, when i first got there 
I realized that um, you know it's it's a um, very traditional area. Well, I knew that already from having been just up the road. Sure, but, uh, sure. Schönram was even more traditional than the the brewery Stein where I had been before, and um, also the the their customers or their their drinkers or their fans were even more. Uh, yeah, how would I? It's hard. It's hard to describe. Uh, just stubborn Bavarians uh, in terms of what they expect. From they have beer. expectations, right? right? And so, you had to keep delivering those expectations. Yeah. So yeah, I, I I realized very quickly that the the easy, the best way, the safest way to approach it was to do nothing first. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I spent the first one and a half years getting to know the entire system, so the the brewery from front to back. All the pipes, all the hoses, all the tanks, all the um, fermenters, um, the whole kit. And <clears throat> because the day I started at the Stammtisch in the in the brewery tap that evening, people at the Stammtisch were already complaining about the beer that since the new guy started, it's changed. <laughs> uh, Even if it was beer in tanks long before you got there, yeah, just yeah. your so, sheer presence there was going to, to make it worse, right? Right, so I realized I was going to have to stay a bit, and uh, of course, I never thought it would be nearly 25 years. I, I still had the intent of coming back here and starting my own place, and at some point, I just, uh, wow, that that uh, train left the station. Um, unfortunately for my parents, they wished that I had come back here, and of course, now seeing beer in Wyoming, this was the place I wanted to come back to. Um, it's not too late. I <laughs> know. But, uh, if you want to come back to Cheyenne and make lagers, uh, this, I mean, none of us are going to complain. Okay. Well, you never know. Never yeah, say yeah, never. It's a retirement plan. Yeah. So I realize it's going to be at least five years, if sure. not more. But um, so I took the very slow approach, and the good that had the effect that um, um, that information was dissemin disseminated uh, into our drinkers or our our fans uh, by my brewers because uh, people. It's, would quiz them and, and put them on the spot and say, so what has the new guy done? What has he changed? And they could honestly say nothing. You know, he's, he's left the beers alone. So it took uh, about three months for for things, the dust to settle. And sure, people accepted sure. the fact. It wasn't so much the fact that I'm American uh, because I had been known, people knew me. I mean, there, is, um, there is a high density of breweries in that area of Southeast Bavaria, but... Uh, I had a, a somewhat of a name, and people knew that I was a respectful. Guy, you were so. you were part right. of that. You were right. Team Bavaria. You right. were not going to exactly yeah. rip and these I, apart and try to rebuild. And I, I adapted the local dialects, so I, I really tried to fit in and blend in uh, with the locals. And um, <laughs> there is a saying: it's a. Uh, so I, when, initially, when I was hired, uh, people would ask, "So where the, where's the new guy from?" And my boss would say, uh, "Ubase. Ubase is." The name uh, of a of a town about thirty kilometers down the road, a local town uh, near us, but it's also the German word for across the ocean. So he wasn't lying. So, <laughs> <laughs> and when I when they found out, oh, what it's him, the American, uh, people swallowed a bit maybe, and then they they said, well, Hauptsachkeitspreis, which is a Bavarian for main thing, not a northern German, so not a Prussian. So it was, it was a, <laughs> better an American. Yeah, than better a, an American uh, than, than somebody from from the north of Germany. So I, and being from Wyoming, it's a rural area. We're mountain people. We like to we're outdoorsy people <laughs> sure, as are sure. the Bavarians. So 
I felt very much at home. And I, I think that the, the Wyoming mentality is very similar to the Bavarian mentality. Uh, we just want to be left alone, uh, want to enjoy the nature we have right in front of us and tend to have an earthy or even scatological sense of humor. And I have all that. So that's... Uh, <laughs> you fit right in. <laughs> so I fit right into that mentality. But um, I did start tweaking the, the beers gradually, um, specifically... Um, Luckily, my, my predecessor was a stickler. Um, he, he, we had open fermenters when I arrived. He had built new open top fermenters uh, to replace some older ones. And he was very particular about that detail. Um, he was not so particular about uh, duration of lagering or so, so particular about decoction mash. And um, he was a guy he's he's in his 80s now he was uh, he he grew up in a time when the he, when they there was a quantum leap from whole leaf hops to hop extract so when uh hop strainers were being disbanded in favor of whirlpools pellets had come out and brewers quickly found that you know nobody had engineered a whirlpool properly so with all the problems they were having, uh, shortly after the in, uh, the implementation of whirlpools in many breweries, um, breweries started using extract to reduce the load on the on the whirlpool. So he was of the old school who had made that quantum leap from from hop strainer to whirlpool. So he'd gone from whole leaf hops to pellets to pellets plus extract, and he was using about sixty to sixty five percent extract. So I still had some old contracts. Um, that I had to use up. It took me a couple of years to get rid of that. And that was about also the same time we had to start putting that on the label. So you have to put on the label, uh, Wasser Malz Hopfen, so water malt hops. And if it's, uh, if you're using extract, you have to put Hopfen Extract. So an extract to Germans sounds like chemicals. Right, right. Or artificial. So we, that we, when that law was passed and we had to put it on the label, uh, we were still using up uh, some of the extra contracts. So I had a lot of explaining to do to, to our drinkers. Right, you hadn't changed anything. This was what it was, and we're going to... Yeah, 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 yeah. But so I was, and it was also against my philosophy, and, and I, I had I re-engineered the whirlpool. Luckily, my predecessor, he built this whirlpool, so it had... Uh, the right surface area. It had enough area to capture um, the load um, using 100% pellets hops, but uh, I had to change some of the piping, uh, the, the the angle of the inlet, the diameter of the inlet, the speed. You know, added a a frequency uh, a frequency converter to the pump so that I could adjust the pump speed at knockout. So it was just more of a matter of tweaking the engineering. Uh, and the uh, fluid mechanics of the of the whirlpool to get that to work properly. So, eventually got rid of the extract, and at the same time was through actually through my experience in Belgium. We were using hops from Slovenia, from Poland, from Czechoslovakia, from the Czech well Czechoslovakia back then, Czech Republic, Germany, England, Belgium. I think I didn't know I didn't leave anything out. So we were using hops from all these countries, different varieties, and. I recognized in Belgium the the difference that the hop variety can make, or the hop terroir, or the you know it's the country of its origin uh, it can make sure, on sure. on the, the the you know the, the flavor of the beer and the aroma. So 
I started Cons- really consistency is your goal and consistency. Right. Yeah. So I really started looking at the the hop in a, in a, in a method in a way to express um, the flavor of our beer. So take going away, we were using um, uh, Brewer's Gold um, at the time, which was very common in Germany about that time. So Brewer's Gold extract, tradition, and Perle. Um, eventually got rid of the Brewer's Gold and the Perle. Tradition is still one of my main hops. And I branched out. Oh, we had some Hesbrucke as well. Um, uh, and uh, since then we branched out. We've kept tradition. Uh, tradition, Hesbrucke, uh, and have t- picked up Safia, Halita, Mittelfru, um, Tetnanga, and then some of the newer varieties, uh, Mandarina Bavaria, Kalista, Ariana, and some very rare varieties that are grown in Tetnang from one of my farmers. Uh, they're actually originally French um, land varieties, so Petit Blanc and Tardif de Bourgogne, and I don't think I've left anything out. Um, yeah, Halletau Middlefruit, if I mentioned that. I, I like to use those from Halletau and Tetnang because the Tetnang Middlefruit is very different than the, from the Halletau Middlefruit, and the combination is what what does it. The combination. Yeah, so it's the the fruity, citrusy, lemon character from Tetnang and more of the piney, light pine floral character that you get from the Halletau. So as you're, you you mentioned, you use these hops and this, these newer varieties. How are you employing those within the beers that you make? Are these going in small amounts into existing beers, or do you design new lager beers with some of these hops in mind? Well, we're, when we're doing seasonals or, or one-offs, uh, I, I will often use a single variety just for many years um, – well, I'm still doing it. Actually, we we have our Christmas beer, which is actually a, a classical Mietzen. It's about 650 hectoliters a year. Uh, we brew it in August to be uh, served starting the first Sunday of Advent. So it gets a good 10 weeks of lagering, even more a little bit, depending on when when Advent starts. But sure. uh, somewhere between 10 and, and 11, 11 and a half weeks um, in the cellar. And that's a 14 Plato um Big Mietzen, uh using Vienna malt, sort of a you know the way Mietzen beer used to be, um, <laughs> and I've I, I've probably well I've gone through all those varieties with that beer over the year, over the course of the years, and it's but it's always single hopped. I've done it with Mandarina Bavaria. I've done it uh, uh, with thirty six BUs. I've done it with eighteen BUs. Um, tried a bit of everything so people look forward to that beer because they know it's going to be different every year and a couple years well three years running i did it with tetnang from the same farm but from a different lot <laughs> hmm. so it's uh that's one one way to play with the varieties uh with the the our biggest our flagship beer is the the hellas that makes up 80 percent of our sales and people expect consistency um, reliable consistency. They don't want any experimentation. So I blend um, four different varieties um, for that. So it's always tradition. Spalte Select, that's one I forgot to mention. I was thinking I was missing one. Spalte Select, um, Hesbrucke and Safia. Actually, right now I'm blending Halletau uh, Mittelfru into it. So I'm using five hops at the moment. And I did a, about a year and a half 
uh, where I had a little bit of a little bit too much of uh, Mandarina Bavaria and was also using that. You know, it's all hot side, so if you use it early enough, it does very well in Alice. Without an aromatic pickup there. Right. But that, you know, because hops are an agricultural product, there is some variance from year to year based on how that, that harvest looks. You know, if you know, that blend allows you to, uh, you know, allows you to adjust for various characters right, yeah. and uh, and whatnot that might happen in that. How What does that process look like for you? How do you then approach thinking about that blend, knowing that maintaining that consistency is your goal, you go into hop selection then and you right. are selecting these hops and thinking about them and then figuring out how, like what, how does that process look as you then start to develop what that blend might look like as you move on for the new season of hops. Right. It's uh, I'm, I always, always go to selection. I, I spend a lot of my time in the hop yards um, during the harvest and then we'll select on, on pre-harvest. So just, smelling, sniffing things just before they're picked. Already thinking that might be what, what I want and then seeing how it comes out uh, out of the kiln. So it's a lot of sniffing and rubbing and uh, getting into it. And so for each variety, I have a, a particular uh, desire, a desired character, desired aroma. I'm not, you know, there's, it was Dave Grinnell from Boston Brewing Company said, uh, Selecting hops is not is not a beauty competition, so you know they don't have to look great. I mean, they shouldn't be uh, horribly damaged or diseased or, or you know full of one disease or another. But a little bit of um, damage actually helps to you know improve the aroma or the alpha acid because that's a it's, it's a reaction of the, the hop plant to a little bit of that stress uh, to, to a stress situa yeah. situation yeah so so i have a particular desirable characteristic for each variety that i try to reselect every year how do you articulate what that is you know how do you lock that i mean it's it's living somewhere in your brain does that live in in, in a language or does that uh, how would you describe some of those characters that you are looking for yeah, there's uh, there are just a few like bullet points for each variety that I'm looking for. So when I take my assistant with me, or I'll take an apprentice, uh, so I tell them this is what I want and or what I think is right for our beer. And um, for well, tradition was bred to emulate Hallertau Mittelfru. Problem was it was Mittelfru then as now is uh, is a very uh, it's very susceptible to weather, and uh, so you'll have alphas anywhere between 2 and 5% and or even more. This last year was 5.5%. On the average, it's around 4% over 10 years. So, um, you know, the, the tradition was, was bred so that it would emulate the character of Hotletal Middlethrough, which it does pretty well. It's sort of like the Centennial is to the Cascade, you know, sort of a... Uh, more of a, a higher alpha variety of that with a more reliable yields and reliably higher alpha acid content. So I'm looking for that. It has a light citrus floral character, a little bit of pine in the background from the tradition. The Hesbrucka often has a um, um, combination of um, orange marmalade and, and lavender, uh, safia, uh, um, has a bit of lemongrass and mango. These are little background. The German hops are all very uh, herbal and floral and 
piney, but these loose, it's, it's more like the nuances in the background. Right, that right. Are, we're not talking about this in hazy IPA terms where it's very easily digestible and yeah, understandable yeah, as that thing. These are yeah. um, overtones, undertones, like right. s- very, very small subtleties. Sparta Select is also, it has a very, it has almost a sweet aroma that can, can go toward pina colada. It can uh, be, have a little bit of coconut, a little bit of pineapple. Uh, but at the same time, it's very classic. Um, Tetnang. There, there are two different sort of tracks of Tetnang, you could say. There's um, the more earthy, um, spicy variety. And there, there's, there are many different clones of Tetnang. So there's the earthy, spicy, and then there's the more the uh, light lemon zest. And I'm always looking for the lemon zest. I like the spice, but I like the lemon zest more. So that's very dependent upon Tewa and uh, where it's grown. You know, on something like the Hell... What do those additions then look like on the hot side? And, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about anything else because there isn't anything else, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what I, we're what's... talking about traditional German lager brewing and not uh, whirlpooling and dry hopping and, or massive amounts. Yeah, it, it could be that if I'm using four varieties, I'm using five right now, but um, I'm, so I'm using five varieties right now, but they're actually actually eight different lots. So if two of the, three of those varieties are from two different harvest. So I can't have as many as three harvests of one variety. So theoretically before I could have as many as 12 different lots that I put into that. So you phase in the previous year mm, right? Uh, or the, 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 the current year as you're phasing out the previous. And if I maybe overdid it or really liked a certain lot, I might have a little more, you know, we have our forward contracts, but, um, I will, um, you know, if if it's a particularly good year, I'll just you know, if if I say there's so and so many bales from this yard, uh, my contract says I take uh, eight thousand kilos. But if there's nine thousand kilos, I'll take the rest. You know, so I might have a little bit more than than I need. So that's why I can get into three years. But so that'll be a small part of that variety uh, as it's being phased out. Then, so I'm always phasing in and out. A couple times a year, I'll do single brew batches of Helles with one variety, just to, and I'll put that into the lager tank separate. And um, I'll do that same thing with, um, you know, maybe Tordition and select one year, the next year with Hezbrucka and Safia, just for me to kind of dial myself into it again. So I'll take 15 liter kegs off of those. We have these tall kegs, they're kind of like the Sixtals here. And I'll I'll trickle those off when the beer is finished. I mean, when it's at the end of its maturation period, and let it settle for a couple of days because it drops pretty bright. If it's already reached, you know, five weeks in in, in maturation, and you let it drop then in, in this keg for another week. Um, it's pretty pretty bright, and then I put those two next to each other. So the regular Hellas just taken off the you know one of our tanks and the. The, the single varietal Hellas, just to get a feel of what that variety does for for the beer. And if it's if I've had bad years, I've actually if if it's been a you know a, a very bad poor harvest of one particular variety, and that happens because of the you know it's a four week period of uh, the hops um, the hop the harvest. So you might have rainy, nasty weather or it's been too cold and the hops aren't quite where they should be, but uh, near the end of harvest when some of the later varieties come up, 
you get them at the right moment. So uh, I'll tend to then reduce the amount of those varieties that didn't perform so well or didn't come out so well from that harvest. And so I'm, I can, I'm able to, to adjust the percentage of each of those varieties from year to year. And then, of course, um, in the end, because we're not looking for much aroma, I mean, we want aroma, but in the end, so I'm always uh, dosing according to alpha acid. That being followed by analyses, we can do our own bittering units. So looking at the, the bittering units as, com as compared to just the sensory perception, and what I usually adjust then is, is it's just the, the time that I add it. So um, I might start a little bit later in the boil or a little bit earlier, but I, I spread it out over three. There's three editions for the Hellas, for example. Um, the last edition being 10 minutes before the end of boil. Have you done any uh, kind of profiling of your preferred hops, you know, in terms of... Uh, trying to build a profile of what it is, you know, from a, like a GC mass spec, uh, you know, kind of component level of those. I know that that's happening more often these days, especially with larger breweries trying to select from those hops that are within a range that they want for that kind of consistency, or, or do you still kind of prefer the, the sensory method? So far it's just been sensory. Um, I, that's something I would like to do. And that's something we've talked about in, in, in the frame of maybe a, um, not necessarily a dissertation, but a master's thesis or something. But um, find a good student that might uh, want to do that for you. And uh, right, yeah, <laughs> because uh, yeah, we're uh, well, the, only the big breweries have sure, sure, um, a lot of resources involved. Have in the resources, kind of the laboratory yeah. capacity to do that. And, and if you have it, and if you have it done, and it's not in the course of some research project, that's maybe. Um, accompanied by the the faculty at the, in, in Von Stefan, it gets pretty expensive pretty fast. So, I imagine. Well, that's that's interesting to talk about hops. I want to talk about fermentation because, of, as mm -hmm. you've mentioned, we've talked about you you, you do you practice open fermentation and uh, you know with your lager beers. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brew House to the integrated hop backs on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brew houses. SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head on over to ssbrewtech.com. So I mentioned I want to uh, you know, talk about open-top fermentation, but I think I, we should actually back up from that and talk about uh, mash strategy, decoc decoction, and uh, in that process, you mentioned earlier on that uh, as you moved into the brewery, that the prior brewmaster had a more flexible approach uh, to decoction. Talk to me about uh, Shunram's approach to decoction, how that varies between the beers that you make or if it varies between the various beers that you make. And uh, in your work, how you have found uh, it actually impacts the beers that you make with the malt that you use for those. Yeah, so it, that starts with the, the barley variety. It's also, it's not only the hops that I'm looking at, but also the right. bar barley variety. And, and we purchase all of our, our barley through four local family-owned maltings in Bavaria. Um, unfortunately, they're also influenced by the world market and the current situation. I'm contracting barley, forward contracting. I've always done that, but not this far in advance. We're going to harvest 24 already. And we'll be, we're looking at paying 
twice, um, even 2024 than we were paying last year. Mm. So it's, uh, it's not only, it's, uh, also looking at the terroir of the barley and where that's grown. And I try to spread the risk, uh, among Bavaria, uh, around Bavaria. So we'll have, we have Franconian barley. We have barley from the Oberpfalz. We have barley from lower Bavaria and from upper Bavaria and also part of, uh, Bavarian Swabia. So, uh, by doing so, how does the terroir on those barley farms differ and what, what can you really sense in that? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about this because especially with something that goes through such a rigorous malting process, um, you know, where, where is that sensory level and threshold and how much difference do you actually perceive between those? It's, um, well, at the moment, a lot of it is uh, the, the barley breeding programs um, are they're, they're going after yield because the barley price has been going down for years. Right. Now it's, of course, completely different with the current world situation. But um, uh, I was always looking for varieties with lower yield because the lower yields, I thought, gave more flavor. The corns tended to be fuller. The husks uh, tended to be thinner. And... Um, with the higher yield um, varieties, uh, you have, in the end, uh, a lot more husk, a lot more potential for uh, polyphenol, for tannins coming out of out of the barley, but also... You're getting heavier barley, but it's not necessarily what you need out of that barley. Yeah, and, and they have a deeper color. I'm always looking for the, the brightest possible color. Um, and, and barleys that grow in higher areas, so higher elevation... Uh, that are harvested later if the weather's right. Unfortunately, it's the case that if it's a good hop year, it's usually a bad barley year and mm. the other way around. But the barley's from a little bit higher elevations tend, uh, through the being harvested later often have an advantage in that uh, they have fuller um, endosperm. They tend to have uh, lower protein, a uh, little bit lower protein, so they don't get as dark. And it gives the beer... Yeah, well, you get more extract out, extract out of it, more juiciness. Um, juiciness. Yeah. That's what you're looking for in your lager right. barley. And, well, I, I tell the maltsters, please leave the mashing to me. I don't like uh, over-modified yeah. um, uh, barley malt. So uh, we pursue a single-step infusion up to a certain temperature. Uh, at which at some point, depending on, when, on the, the oh, so with this, you ha- are, are they then custom malting the malt to your specification? Um, to an extent, it depends. Yeah. We have, um, two of our maltings can do that. Two of them, not so easily, but then we're just more picky. We won't take everything. And they, we always get an analysis up front and because of the good relationships we have and because of the fact that we've been working with the same maltings for for well over two decades now. So um, they know what I want and they know that I'm also not afraid afraid to send a truck back <laughs> or yeah. to make a phone call, an, an, irritate, an ag- irritating phone call the minute I've uh, mashed in and, or at least started lottering if have identified problems. So I'm not shy to to complain. I'm always very polite. and sure. um, But I always, uh, I rather than complain, behind their backs, I call them immediately and tell them. So they know I'm a bit sensitive and picky and um, meticulous. So 
they pay better attention, it actually works pretty well. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. There you go. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So, so with all of our beers, we do a, uh, we start with a single with a, with a, a step multiple step uh, infusion, which at some point is then arrested uh, by drying off a portion for decoction. Um, uh, the, 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 decoction, decocted portion will also undergo a slight step infusion before we actually boil. Um, we're at about 1300 feet, uh, 1400 feet in Schoenraum elevation. So we boil at about 80, 98.5 C, which is somewhere, I don't know, 205 or I don't right. know. Right. Um, so the, the, the infusion part of the mash, the steps and the temperatures and which temperatures and the time, the duration of each rest will depend on the year and on the, on the beer. I have some on the here. year on the, on the harvest, on right. the harvest year. Yeah. How does, how much does that vary? And, uh, how do you make the decisions about how to change that? Uh, that's, yeah, that varies uh, a lot. And we brewers made the mistake. I don't know how long ago, um, the winemakers went down the right path telling everybody it's a natural product and it changes every year. It's supposed right, to. Right. And some idiot in marketing many decades ago told consumers beer always tastes the same. So we're all stuck with that. And of course, that's what a lot of the, the big breweries propagated for many years, uh, that this reliable consistency. So the consumers are a bit schizophrenic. They want... Um, reliable consistency year in and year out, but they also want a natural product. So, and unlike wine, which has the grape, we are dealing with barley and, and hops or sometimes multiple grains and hops. And as I mentioned, <laughs> um, usually if it's a good hop year, it's a bad barley year or not so good barley year, or especially if it's a fantastic hop year, it's usually a, a bad barley year. So, we're always dealing with these two um, clashing factors. So we have two things that don't quite match up right. agriculturally that we're dealing with. So, so how do those steps then change, you know, depending on the, the barley harvest? Well, we, um, we won't get the first new harvest into, our, into the brewery until about um, mid-November, say, mid-November mid to mid-December. So we have with each of our monsters agreed to a regimen of blending some blending old new variety right, right. Uh, old variety or the the previous harvest and actually blending the new harvest into the previous harvest so goes up in increments of uh 10% so 10% 20 and so and, and so on and that comes <clears> from <throat> the monster then blended with the prior year and yes, then yes. the percentage of the the right. new new harvest malt right and what we do though is we at some point, um, that's usually in January, we will take, when we're still blending, we will then take uh, a load of all new harvest and make five brews back to back with just that and put that into a dedicated tank, but follow that analytically and sensorily, um, sensorically. Uh, so we will follow it, you know, through, through the fermentation, the parent, uh, so final extract, the parent degree of fermentation color um it also has an effect on on you know how the, how the yield of the hops and that and then the flavor perception and you know sometimes you have a year you got to live with what you got and um you make the best of it but with that then i can 
dial in the mash. So I start changing the mash. So I'll, I'll take, they'll do those five brews back to back. And then uh, five days later, after I see what's going on, I'll brew another five brews back to back with that single new harvest and uh, with a different mash. So try to dial in the mash there before I get to the point where at some point I just have 100% new harvest. So that's usually about when I'm into about 30 to 40% of new harvest blended in, then I'll start doing the, the single new harvest batches just to get a feel for it. Um, sometimes, I mean, it's, there are years, there's nothing you can do about it. It's the colors, what it is. It's too dark or it's too light. You know, we even had, this was 2003, very low color years. And I, I always go for varieties that have low colors anyway, Marte, um, Barque Marte, or they're older varieties that have low colors. And, um, so I'm looking for a final beer color of, in the hellas of five EBC, if possible, 4.8. So as, yeah. as pale as possible. And the cool thing is, is um, that very pale color, but all that flavor. And But we've actually had people, this is, I think 2003, was complaining that uh, the beer was watery. And it was you know, prof, the sensory pro profile, and analytically it was right on target, but it was just a very pale year. And then you get years where it, you know, it gets almost into fest beer color, but there's nothing you can do about it. Um, we don't decoct that long, so it's not like I'm getting a lot of it. It's not like a check pills where you're getting, you're doing triple decoction and you know, forever. Right. Uh, you're getting a lot of color. I don't really, I don't want the color. How long would a decoction typically uh, last? Anywhere from 30 seconds to 10 minutes. 15 minutes max. Usually it's somewhere, what I'll do, like with the Hellas, I'll take it up to boil, boil for 30 seconds and shut off the steam and let it sit for five minutes. So it's actually, the mash is actually being boiled for, for 30 seconds. Does that, you know, with such a short, intense decoction have a, a really sensorially impactful uh, uh, effect on the beer, I mean, why go to the trouble um, of doing that it, if it, it's such a small thing? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't have an effect. Uh, so on the, uh, you don't get the the maltiness. You're not driving is, a Maillard reaction, and right? So I don't. I don't, yeah. I don't. So I don't want the malty flavor coming out. What I want. What I, the, primarily at least with the pale beers, the Hellas, the Pils, the, the Fest beer, the intent of the decoction is to do the mechanical exploding of starch molecules, which after I've, you know, after you get above 85 C that's already happening. And then you take that up to boiling, let it sit for a bit. Those molecules are being just through the heat. Um, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're popping and, and being blown apart. And then when you blend or when you bring that back into the, the mash, the rest of the mash, it's sitting, it's anywhere between 62 and 67 C, that's also dependent on the beer and the year, the harvest year. Then you get a conversion, uh, a better conversion. So the decoction for me is more, it's a, it, it does something for the body, but what it does is it, it allows you to get for the gravity that we're brewing at to get higher alcohol contents, you get a higher apparent attenuation. So you're actually, 
low, lowering the the final residual extract, but the 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 alcohol is imparting a sweetness in a body. Alcohol adds body and sweetness to the beer. I always compare it uh, to to the fat in a, in a pork roast, uh, just without the fat. The fat gives it the sweetness and right. the body and the mouthfeel, and that's what the alcohol does, even at these low levels. You don't get the alcoholic burn, but you do get a a mouthfeel and a body from that. Are there circumstances or beers where you add to that decoction strategy and run multiple decoctions? Well, up to this point, we have not been able to do that. We've been using the the lauder ton as a um, as a holding vessel. So we will take actually, or we were taking two thirds of the mash into the lauder ton, let it sit, and using the mash ton to do the decoction. But we've bought a and installed and commissioned just in the last couple months a dedicated mash cooker. So now I have the capacity to go back and forth and really play with that. So I'm... So more decoctions are coming for sure. More decoctions are coming, yeah. (laughs) I really want to try that with with the the Dunglis or... or, Yeah, yeah. Or even with the wheat beer. We'll have to to follow up at some point in the future and uh, and see where those experiments have taken you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, so we go through this, you know, mash, uh, you know, step mash program, which changes every year. And obviously decoct a single decoction is, is a part of this, uh, you know, are there any other elements to this, uh, you know, this mash and louder process that you find, uh, impart a distinctly Shunram, you know, kind of approach or, or that are just critical to what you do? The, the lauder is pretty standard. I mean, the lauder ton as well dimension or is very well dimensioned. So it doesn't take me, I have a runoff of about a, an hour and 20 minutes is, you know, the, the actual runoff time. I do a continuous raking at a very low speed, but it's, well, it's, it's perceptible, but I would say it's almost imperceptible. So just mm. barely cutting uh, while we're laudering. And to, to speed things up, I like to, for as long as possible, not heat up the, start heating the wort in the kettle, because that also helps raise your apparent attenuation, final attenuation. So. And with the pills, I won't start heating the wort until it's all been collected. Mm. Uh, but in the interest of saving time, with the Hellas, um, for example, I I start heating up um, at the uh, second sparge. Uh, ideally, I you know wouldn't uh, wouldn't heat that up until the end either. But um, that also allows the enzymes that are still they're pretty weak and and uh, uh, they're struggling, but they're still doing something. Yeah, yeah. As you, and then, uh, yeah. well, oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. go ahead. Well, then we've got a boil, you know, being at the elevation we're at, it's not that high. It's not like Cheyenne here at uh, sure. 6,000 feet, but um, you still, I, I still have to do a 5% evaporation to ensure that I don't have any DMS problems. Uh, and we have, we, we have a um, pressure phase. So we, we actually close the flue on the chimney of the kettle and, um, take the temp, well, actually we do it on pressure, but it's about, it gets up to about 105 C because we're usually boiling at 98.5. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as we hit that, which is converts to about 160 millibar, uh, we turn off the steam. And uh, so you, you, that just speeds up the reaction rate um, of, of the breakdown of the precursive DMS so that uh, when we open up the flue, after we do this, so we hold that then, we just hold it. 
And as soon as, as it stops boiling the wort, uh, the pressure goes down and the temperature goes down, but it's still a hyper-heated uh, wort right. at that, at that Above point. boiling temperature, right? <laughs> right. So that, that's about, that total is about heating up, so closing the flue, heating up, holding, and then we do a gradual release over a bypass to make sure that, because otherwise if you open the flue and start boiling it again, you'll yeah. shoot wort out the, the chimney. So we wait till we get down to about 10 millibar and then we'll start boiling again. And that, <clears throat> that allows me to, to, to boil at 5% evaporation rate and not have any DMS issues. That's very important because DMS can really, you know, yeah, can, like it ruin the experience. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, you know, how long do you typically boil for? And obviously this is not really time driven. It's much more driven by the percentage yeah. of, uh, of evaporation. 65 minutes. Yeah. yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So then mm-hmm. let's talk about, uh, you know, how you move into fermentation after that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like we, like you mentioned at the top, uh, it's all open top fermenters. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. so you, you, you know, knock out and you, you cool down and what does that next part of the process look like for you? Yeah. So we're, <clears throat> we look at the, the yeast to help the viability of the yeast. Um, we calculate Wait, but, uh, rates. Wh- which yeast strain do you, you use? It's a house strain. It's probably originally a 3470, mm-hmm. but, um, a lot of them a, are. Yeah, yeah yeah so it's under it's under our name in the yeast sure, bank and, sure uh, but it's most probably a 3470 but it does very well um stays in suspension long enough but settles out pretty bright um don't have any problems with diacetyl and it's if everything if the if it's a good wort then it, it's pretty pretty quick so we we pitch it about uh, 18 million cells we give it uh, we start at six to six and a half c in the summer, we can't pitch as cold because we just can't get the the cold liquor down that far. And then, uh, but let it free rise up to nine and a half, and let it almost end ferment. It doesn't quite end ferment. Um, and after about seven, uh, six to seven days, we gradually cool it down. I mean, at some point, it starts kind of dropping on its own. Then we'll take it over thirty six to forty eight hours down to um, three and a half C, and then get most of the yeast out of suspension and then we'll rack that off into lagering and as we're racking it off blending into the to the line we're, we're blending in croissant so we're taking we use croissant all of our beers with helles and it's helles it's about 36 hours into fermentation has uh, so it's about seven percent then of the total volume of the tank and that brings in enough viable healthy active yeast and residual sugar or extract to give us uh, the carbonation we need. The pictures that are in the story that, uh, that Joe took of you are are, pretty pornographic. It's worth, you know, if you're a brewer (laughs) out there, you want to, if you, of course, if you're a subscriber to craft beer and brewing magazine, dive back into the archives that are included in access with every subscription, go find that lager issue from 2020. And, uh, you know, the, the photos of the open top fermenters that, you know, high Croizen are just absolutely gorgeous. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but talk to me about like, like in, in terms of efficiency, you know, closed tanks are certainly going to, you know, provide you with a more secure environment. They're going to, uh, you know, and there are techniques that you could use in that way 
to get close to what you do with open top fermenters without some of those drawbacks. What, from a conceptual level, what do you find about open top fermentation with uh, a lager yeast and that kind of 3470 family that provides a different flavor or sense sensory experience over say, a, you know, a more closed current technical approach to fermentation? Well, the first uh, step of that is to have a, 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 a proper geometry. So you have a, a big surface area relative to the volume. So open surface area. We have uh, about one to one. But why? Uh, that big surface area allows the beer, as there's a German verb. I mean, I don't know. You can, you can invent words in German. So it's ausstinken. Ausstinken, so to stink out. So that, you know, this big surface area allows a lot of the unwanted volatiles to escape into the atmosphere and come out of the beer. Um, it also gives a big surface area for yeah, the sort of the, the hop, hop resins, proteins, dead yeast cells, all that crap you don't want in the beer. It, you know, gets driven up by the, just the process, by the convection, by by the CO2 that get, comes to the surface and you can skim that off. If you um, allow that to be sort of drawn back into the beer, which happens uh, because of the convection and because of that, so it'll be pushed to the top, but at some point it gets pulled back in. And with uh, as the ethanol content goes up, or climbs gradually, it also leaches more and more, um, yeah, just, uh, a perceptible, a perceptible cloying bitterness back into the beer. Hmm. So by um, having that come up and being able to skim that off, being able to really see, and you get islands of it, you get just islands of crap, uh, hmm. <laughs> you know, on the in the vessel. You can just go in there with the slotted spoon or the the vacuum and suck that or pull that out. So you're skimming the heads. And um, it also allows you to really judge the uh, clarity of the beer. It, it, our Hellas looks in the fermenter when it's really dropped, the yeast is dropped out to where we, where we want it. it. We say Schwarz, black. It's not quite black, but it's dark brown. So looks dark brown in the vessel. And if it's yellow looking or straw looking, then you know there's still too much yeast in suspension. I mean, you can draw samples off and do uh, yeast counts of that, look at it under the microscope, but that's a very local phenomenon that you're getting out of a sampling valve. So uh, by looking at the whole surface area, you can really see the, the clarity or, uh, or you know how much yeast is actually hmm. falling out. So the, we don't want to bring too much yeast from there into secondary or maturation or right. lagering. There's, you know, those three terms are the same thing. Um, so the more yeast we can drop out, the better it is then later for the character of the beer because we like to leave the beer in lagering as long as possible. I mean, we have a, mi uh, a minimum, where we had a minimum uh, lagering time after primary fermentation, so with the... Uh, free rise, with holding the temperature, with dropping the temperature, holding it cold before racking off. We're talking nine to 10 days in primary. Rack it off. Um, 
And then we had the, our sort of the, the, the limit where we said we would go to in the summer because in the summer we sell 30% more beer on average than we do. Right. So if you look speed, at the year, speed if you look, make more of it faster. Yeah. yeah. If we look at the yearly average, you take the hectoliter divided by 12, we're, we're selling 30% more than the average than we are uh, all year long. Right. Um, but so that means in January you're selling, you know, maybe you're, you're, Seventy percent of the average, right. so there are huge fluctuations. The Bavarians are outdoor drinkers; they like to drink outdoors. And the nicer the weather, the more they drink. Uh, they love to sit in the beer gardens and that. I, I don't quite get it. I tend to to drink almost less in the summer than I do in the winter if it gets <laughs> too hot. It's, sure, uh, sure. But uh, I, the, the trend is to drink much more. So from May till September, it's a very high volume. So our lagering cellar capacity is set up for that so in the summer we always had problems with getting too short on our on our lagering time so we had the limit of 28 but uh covid um 28 days so four weeks covid showed us that uh, we had at some point when we had the first lockdown and the second lockdown we had a too much beer in, sure, in lagering sure. and it took us a while to uh to finally you know to to dial that in and had to reduce things in the brew house, but yeah, you know, it's but hey, you got to lager your you beer you, a little bit longer. In Germany, the case was uh, you, every every week they had a press conference. You didn't know are, are we opening right. up again? Are we not? So it was very hard to. I mean, at some point, everybody switched to home drinking and just you know said screw it. <laughs> sure, sure. And at some point, actually, uh, I mean, consumption went up massively. So we got rid of all of our old stock, so to speak. Um, but um, your extra extra lagered stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we had we had actually we had stuff seventy days, which is perfect for a stronger beer like the Mietzen and that. For the Hellas, it starts to suffer. I would say at seventy days that was a bit old, but it was perfectly fine at sixty and it's fifty six days. And actually, perfection is about forty two days hmm. for the Hellas. So we've raised our our minimum lagering period now to 35 days so we've increased our lagering capacity but we've also raised the bar so that that gives us what makes it that ideal you know 40 what why is that the ideal time for you i mean and i certainly have spoken to many brewers who have different opinions on this and some are of the the longer it lagers the better it gets kind of you know approach and there are others where you know, now you are saying that that's not true for you, that you, there's some other elements to that beer that you enjoy with less lagering time to it. Yeah. So the first, uh, the first, um, two weeks we, so we, we rack the, the fermented, nearly unfermented beer off at about three C the Kreisen comes into that at about nine and a half. We set the temperature in the tank at four C and we keep it there for two, two weeks. So, that's where we get most of our carbonation. Uh, we come into to, the lagering tank with about, because we're fermenting cold, we come in with about three and a half grams of CO2. So it's not like we need a lot, but the thing is, is if you don't, if you go below 7% croissant, it's kind of a sluggish secondary. So 7% is just perfect. If you go up to 10%, uh, it could be that you have too much residual because you just haven't, fermented everything that's that you brought in through the cruise right. so um you, we, we already need two weeks at 4c to make sure that we get that that 
that natural carbonation. You also get a nice little wash of the beer, drives out additional un unwanted volatiles um, that may have not, you know, been driven off in, in secondary. It's kind of a, and because of the convection going on in the tank, it's a it's a good washing of the beer, I would say. And then uh, then we gradually start to cool that down, and that takes about a week. So that's already three weeks, and then we have. Um, a period of esterification so you have all these organic acids being brought in uh that are you know have been produced during fermentation but also coming through the raw materials are reacting with not only ethanol but other uh, higher carbon alcohols to create esters and for ester formation you need time and then there's the the factor of um um yeast secretion so the yeast starts secreting peptides so lower chain peptides that add to body mouthfeel and a perception of mellowness to the beer and um you well, you've talked to even all the bots this is also something that he talks about sure he he lagers his ales yeah to yeah. get them to give them the proper <laughs> mellowness uh, sure. that, that he wants so um that's so five weeks is say for a low gravity Hellas is is perfect. Although we find that uh, the six or seven weeks are even better. And the pills, we will not go under six weeks. And we have a beer called Gold, which is like a it's a fester or fest. Well, uh, yeah, fest beer. It's a high gravity export. It's about thirteen thirteen and a half Plato's. It's actually like a Wiesenmetzen, you could say, similar to the Oktoberfest. And that's just no good under eight weeks. Hmm. It's got to have eight weeks. And the dark, actually, the dunker, um, also a COVID thing. Uh, we had some of that stuff that was a uh, hundred days in lagering, and poof, I was getting very bourbony and vanilla uh, just <laughs> yeah, for the yeah. esterification process. Uh, and then, of course, so you have the geometry in the fermenters, so we don't go above four meters of height. Hmm. Uh, that's also a stress thing for the yeast, and and by having open top fermenters, you don't have certainly don't have any additional overpressure that would add to the potential stress of the yeast, right. because then you get the yeast is secreting other things into the beer that you don't want that are going to affect the flavor. But in the maturation, then we also have that um, uh, we have some just it's because of the. The brewery and, and uh, the cellars that we have. I mean, the brewery goes back to 1780, so some things you just can't change too easily. <laughs> sure, sure. But we have some, uh, and we to get the maximum volumes out of those cellars, we put in um, standing tanks, so vertical tanks that they're dish bottom tanks. They're not cylinder conical with a with a steep con cone on it. Uh, so dish bottom tanks, and we'll have the those the highest tank we have is four meters. Uh, my favorite tanks are horizontals um, because I get the best clarification there. Mm. If you just look at the, um, you know, it's a it's a giant rectangle as opposed to a, a, a cylinder, yeah. so, you know, standing cylinder. If you lie it down, it's a rectangle. So you have a big surface area. The yeast settles out much better. But um, it's the same thing, you know, in the secondary fermentation. Uh, you don't stress these because you have an, a little bit of an opioid word about 0 0.3, 0 0.4 bar, which is what, 5 PSI, uh, 5 to 7 PSI uh, overpressure on the tank. But because they're not 
you know, terribly tall. Right. The yeast is not stressed there as well. And you get a much better clarification. So we like to to be heading to the filter coming out of out of lagering at you know about 10 EBC. I mean, once we get above 20, it's uh of, of turbidity. Mm-hmm. We know that it's gonna the filter run is not gonna be as long right. as it could be. Right, right. So we're, you know, if, if you look at, we have a plate and frame DE filter um, that's set up to do officially, you know, according, you know, if you look at the papers of the filter, we could do 1,200 hectoliters in one run and we get as much as 1,700 hectoliters, sometimes even 2,000 we've done, but that gets a bit dangerous because we don't want to overdo it, but easily 17, 1,800 hectoliters through that. So we're getting about 50, 40, 50% more out of the filter mm-hmm. or out of each run than we could just because of the way we, we work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are, we're getting on in time here, but I, I want to come back to the subject of water. You know, right. uh, water yeah. is something we haven't talked about yet, but it's a, it's certainly a crucial piece of this in, in terms of the way the yeast, uh, you know, works and the way that hops express and, and, uh, you know, what, talk to me about the character of your water and, uh, you know, what you do to that and uh you know some of the parameters around that 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 lead to the beer quality that you're looking for we um we have um actually it's very similar to the munich water um that was common when munich beer became popular so it's um it's water runoff water from the alps into the Mm -hmm. aquifers so it's very high in calcium carbonate calcium bicarbonate not high in magnesium uh but a lot of carbonates really so not much in the way of um, uh, chloride or sulfates. Um, so it's par- par- primarily calcium and, and bicarbonate in that. So um, we do a process of where we add, we, we split, we split uh, as we're coming into our water treatment, we split the stream of water into three streams. Um, the smallest stream, which is about um, 8% of the total, we will run through a, rea- uh, a vessel that is full of, of um, calcium hydroxide. Um, so it's super saturated calcium hydroxide solution. So it's just uh, we get uh, calcium uh, hydroxide anhydrate and uh, mix that with water and pump that into this vessel. So that super saturates that little stream, super saturates with, um, with that calcium hydroxide milk, we call it milch, Katzen milch. And it goes, um, fl- overflows into the reactor where we take two thirds of the total. And that, rea- that, that, that has about a, a pH of around 13 to 14. So it's, uh, it's very alkaline. Mm-hmm. And there you get a, a reaction. And we have a forced path that it has to go down a tube to the bottom of the vessel, which is, has a conical bottom. And it has a forced flow down this tube and up. And in this time, you get a reaction um, of the calcium hydroxide with solution with, uh, with the, the, um, the hardness of the water. And uh, you get a sedimentation, a precipitation. Uh, that settles out in the cone, and that overspills then into a third vessel where we take the remaining, um, well, it's, um, what did I say? So it's, you know, Two-thirds, 10%, so about 30%, a little less, 25% of the remaining 
of the of the full volume that we blended. That brings the pH back down, but you have a continuous precipitation. Uh, so we were able to take that alpine water down to so it's uh, ppm is always hard for me to because we're always looking at hardness degrees of hardness um so off the top of my head <laughs> uh but we take it down to about five degrees of german hardness so from um 19 to 20 degrees german hardness down to five mm. um very very low residual alkalinity um it's not pilsner style water but it's 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 getting there so it's very very soft water then and that before it goes into the water, the um, brewing water tank goes over a, a sand filter to just get out any particles that are still have not sedimented out. So it's a very, say, non-invasive way. Yeah. Uh, you know, we don't have to add any acids or any chemicals or or uh, any other chemicals. We don't have to uh, use any or much electricity. You know, it comes just water coming off um, at pressure we reduce the pressure down to two and a half bar run it through the the decarbonation plant and then off into the water tank so it's a just yeah it's a simple primitive actually old-fashioned way of doing that and you can only really do that with that kind of alpine carbonate high carbonate hardness water sure sure that's really interesting um yeah yeah well that that allows us to make the the paler beers i mean when the brewery was founded it was that whole area was uh, brown beer territory, so we were a, a brown beer brauerei. So brown was is a dunkles, um, and that was all we made because it was we didn't treat the water right because of the dark malt that helps to bring down the acidity of the mash and the acidity of the wort. So it does well. That kind of high carbonate water does well with dark beers or wheat beers. Wheat beers don't care either. But it doesn't do well with pale beers. They get a very harsh, uh, cloying bitterness uh, that, uh, well, there's really nothing you can do to change it. It's just the water right. profile. So uh, by softening it like that, you know, and then that's what actually paved the way and say around 18. So Pilsners came out in 1842. Um, it took it took it a while for the the hype to reach Munich back then. <laughs> uh, it was, right, right. It was, uh, it was uh, in 1895, I believe, that Spaten was the first brewery yeah. in Bavaria to make that style of beer, sort of emulating the Pilsner style, but they weren't decarbonating their water. So they had to really bring the hop character down or the hop additions down to not make it too cloying. And that's actually how Helles became a style. Was it's uh, the Bavarian attempt to making a Pils, but um, uh, compromising on the hopping rates based on their water so and they were even afraid to sell that stuff locally they you know they started they exported it to the mm. north of germany and it was only when the you know the chic folks of munich said you know we want that beer too that they started selling it locally and we we didn't really get on, on to helles until the, the mid 1950s i think the first helles we made was in 1954. Hmm. that's a great segue to, to ask you about this question you know as I was drinking your Hellas this past weekend, I, I was noticing that, uh, you know, compared to what an American idea of Hellas might be, it was considerably more bitter, that there was more structure yeah. to it, that, uh, you know, I mean, and I think Americans 
this and this happens in both directions. You know, a European idea of American IPA gets conditioned by what happens when beer sits on a boat, you know, for months yeah. at a time to get across an ocean. You know, and what you what you then taste, you know, is different than how it tastes when it's fresh. Uh, and the same thing happens to Americans drinking Helles from Germany or Pilsner from Germany or, or Czech that what we get by the time it sits on a boat for a few months is not the same beer as it is when it's fresh. Um, but it was an interesting one tasting that this weekend and thinking, you know, that that's, you know, th- these beers can be these things. And I think that there's some, um, you know, maybe misunderstanding of, of how those beers are, in, you know, intended to taste as, as they're made and served fresh in their, in their own locales. Um, as I was talking to Joe Stang before this, you know, he was mentioning that, you know, comparatively Shunran is a little bit more bitter than maybe some of its compatriots. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But not that much more bitter, you know, it's not that much further out. Uh, you know, as how do you all approach this and how do you think about bitterness in the beer itself? Well, the, um, the, the, South, South, Southeast Bavarian uh, Hellas tend to be higher in bitterness. Um, they also tend to be higher in gravity. Um, Munich's, uh, Munich Hellas is quite a bit lower in gravity, about a half, half a degree Plato, maybe around 18.3, 18.4. Uh, sorry, 11.3, 11.4. Plato, uh, bittering units around 14. If you get further east and north, it can, they can go down as low as uh, 12 bittering units. I mean, they're, it's, uh, I would say they just carry the bag of hops through the brew house and <laughs> right. show it to the kettle and then keep walking. Um, just show it to the kettle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're, we're at about 19. We always try to hit 19. 20 always seems to be a bit much, and 18 is not enough. So and, yeah. uh, we're reliably consistent with hitting 19. So we're, it is uh, much more assertively hopped than the Munich style, and we're at 11.9 Plato, so it's higher gravity. And through our high attenuation, it's at 5.3. So that that historically has to do with the fact that all the other, so our local competitors, if you will, are uh, you know that in breweries within a proximity of you know 30, 40 kilometers of us, they were all brewing uh, export hay. So they're brewing beers with 12.4 Plato and higher hopping rates. We never did that. We didn't start brewing an export style, and we never called it export. We called it gold uh, until the 1980s. So we were always competing with export style or export how, and but we were making a, a hellas. So people were always measuring our beer compared to the other local breweries. We never claimed our beer to be export hair and the others never claimed their beer to be a, a um, just a hellas, but the consumer always just looks beyond that word export and they just see hey. And so that's, uh, <laughs> that's where that comes from. Yeah. Uh, so, but, uh, so we were always being measured against a beer that was about 0.6, 0.7 Plato higher in gravity and through that already higher in hops. But that's very specific to this region. If you get um, further southwest, or so southwest of Munich, it starts going down in bitterness again. And if you get north of Munich, it goes down first and then it goes back up in Franconia. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Where, where, yeah. 
but uh, then they start the Franks start calling their beer uh Franconia start calling it a, a pills which is it's not really it's kind of like a hoppy hellas it's so it's actually it's always a bit of a different beer uh wherever you look <laughs> i love the the original. range of possibility yeah, within yeah. this uh, that it's uh, maybe a bit wider than the canon as we tend to think about it in the united states yeah might, might yeah. potentially be yeah there's a, you know people always talk about munich style hellas and or is definitely is not munich style but, but there's plenty uh, more to hellas than just munich style hellas that's correct there yeah. you go um you mentioned mash cooker mm-hmm. you know for a brewery that was founded in 1780 and that is uh you know built on this idea of tradition you're not afraid to try things that might allow you to make beer in better and more effective ways and to achieve that um what's next on you know what are, what are the other things that you're looking at the other kinds of projects that you're working on and some of the other pieces that you're trying to solve for or at least uh, understand or learn more about through that process and uh you know what, what are the the big kind of projects on the horizon for you well so uh, playing with this mash cooker is gonna it's gonna be a lot of fun that is uh got a lot to do with that and i'm gonna gonna try Gonna try I'm, I'm just setting that up as an excuse to come back and do another episode where we talk about ah, stuff yeah, in the future. Yeah. You know, I'm just shameless, you know, and <laughs> well, all of that. Go. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, yeah, just uh, that's uh, I'm looking forward to that. That's always yeah. something that goes. Uh, it's a sign of kind of a side gig. Sure, trying sure. something out. You know, I usually do these kind of test brews at night, um, where there's no phone ringing, there's no email, there's nobody coming in and bothering you. There's just that one shift brewer there in the brew house, and sure. I'll sit there and play with parameters or with process. Um, so I'm going to try that with uh, the wheat beer to get try to get more aroma out of it. You know, just to get more simple sugars in the wheat beer to get get even more yeast expression. Yeah, but um, I also want to look at the possibilities of. Uh, um, shortening the mash. We have a pretty short mash anyway, of about two hours, two hours and 10 minutes. But that varies also with the harvest year. But by doing maybe two quick decoction steps, if it's not even more yeah. f- more efficient and we being able to take that down another 10 minutes. Because we're, you know, we, we, we're, we're knocking out a, a beer every three hours. We mash in every three hours. We start Sunday night, finish Friday afternoon. 36 brews a day so they're by adding the mash cooker we've taken the saturday away uh so the brewers don't have to work on saturdays anymore but i'm trying to look at ways of quick quickening that up even more to so we can make more brews in the same time sure but but not compromise but actually the other projects that i have are all very boring um (laughs) yeah uh well actually not i mean some a lot of it's uh uh Getting uh, some, you know, the handbooks and SOPs right, and that up right. to, to speed, but um, um, we have to go. We're going through a, a process of getting the permission to put up outdoor malt silos. Right now, they're all indoor, but it's all because it's a protected historical monument. We can't uh, right, we can't right. compromise the facade or anything like that. So, it's a lot of uh, bureaucracy and paperwork and phone calls and emails. Uh, one exciting thing that I'm uh, working on is our wastewater treatment plant. We've added a, a anaerobic digester because we've we've been treating our wastewater since 1972. Uh, but as we've been, it's all aerobic. Yeah, but we're making 
we're using way too much electricity and uh, producing way too much sludge, which we used to be able to put out on the fields, but we can't do that anymore. So we have to to spend a lot of money to get rid of that. And, and in the end, it gets burned. Uh, uh, you know, so it's thermally at least processed. Right. But um, so by adding an anaerobic digester uh, as a pre uh, prephase to the aerobic, we're going to lower our, our, mm. our electricity needs, but also um, ink, uh, ink, lower our sludge production, and at the same time uh, produce biogas, which we can we can burn off in our kettle. So right now the focus for me is going to be benchmarking. I'm working on specific water usage, electricity usage, specific how many kilowatt hours per hectoliter, how many hectoliters sure, of water sure. per hectoliter of beer, and how many hectoliters of wastewater do we produce. And because the Germans, well, we've, we've been ourselves sensitized to that for a long time, but uh, it's now everybody's comparing uh it doesn't matter what what um, branch of of production you're in if it's you know in of, of any right, industry right. people are looking at uh what is your co2 footprint so sure it's gonna sure. be working and that becomes that. all taxable within 2030 uh yeah yeah yeah, right, yeah. Right, yeah so we, you know we've got a lot of solar panels we're putting up more um you know we're finally getting in if um, we've been using oil to to produce steam in our in our steam generator finally getting a gas line put in it's we've been working on it for four years but until we get the permission to go through 35 properties mm. not every one of those people drinks our beer so <laughs> now we're finally <laughs> finally getting uh right, right. getting our gas line that's all that's not sex anymore because because of some asshole in russia who decided to invade ukraine so now we're trying to get off of gas so just around the time we're about ready to start using gas. It's it's also not cool anymore. So there you go, <laughs> there you go. Well, Eric, I think that's a great place to wrap this up. We could I could talk for another couple hours, but uh, I, I imagine your dad would like to do something else later on today, and not just sit here and listen to us uh, podcasting here. G and D Chillers has set the mark for quality equipment you can rely on. The Malt House is your online source for cool and exclusive raw malting company gear. Think outside the puree box with craft concentrates from Old Orchard. Arrived is the mobile all-in-one solution you need to decrease service friction and increase guest satisfaction and put SS Brewtech's advances to work in your brew house. As always, your magazine subscription directly supports our ability to bring you this podcast. Each week, go to, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and let us know that this content matters to you. Uh, thanks again to the team at Blacktooth here in Cheyenne, Wyoming, for letting us take their take over their office uh, to record this podcast. Thank you. A appreciate thank you. them. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Eric, if people want to learn more about uh, private land library Schönram, where do they find more out about you? Uh, so www.schönrama.de. So that's S C H O with two dots over it. I mean, I think you can do that now on every keyboard. N R A M E R dot D E. So, or Shoin Ramer, so O E instead of the O with the umlaut. Um, or www.brauerei, uh, so B R A U E R E I minus Schönram dot D E. 
beers are available in America. There's an importer out of California that brings you in here, and you're available yeah. in a few few states. Uh, um, and so, if yeah. you'd like to have that beer yourself, you can get it here in the United States of America. You can. There's a, a gentleman out in Santa Monica, Mark Gellach. Uh, sounds very German, but he's he's an American guy, former pro tennis player, and he's a big fan of our beers, and he brings our some beers from our area. Um, so, and you can find it in better beer bars around the country, including places like uh, Greg Engert's bars in Washington D.C. Because of course go. he's a big fan of yours too. You anyway, thanks for joining me on the podcast, Eric. It's been phenomenal to talk to you. I'm glad we finally got this in this year. Uh, we couldn't do it in Brussels at Cantillon, but here we are at your hometown of Cheyenne, and uh, it's been fantastic talking about Lager Brewing with you. Cheers. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks for the invitation. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.